Hi everyone, welcome back to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. And for today's episode, I'm going to delve into some of the more obscure stories about the early papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. And since this is the month of October, in honor of Halloween, we're going to zero in on one event in particular, a time when the corpse of a pope was put on trial in Rome. Now, a lot of people are familiar with the story of the Borgias from the period of the Renaissance, but you know me, I go into areas that are far more obscure. And in order to fully understand the context of what I'm covering today, we're going to have to go back to the very beginnings of the institution of the papacy, when it was originally thought of as the bishop of the city of Rome. And the original Christian bishops were leaders of local congregations. The word in English comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means a shepherd. So the idea of calling the congregation around a certain clergyman his flock originates from that. Simon Peter, of course, is said to have been the first pope, and he's fairly well known because he was one of the Twelve Apostles. His martyrdom, probably at the hands of soldiers acting on the orders of the Emperor Nero, is said to have taken place on the Vatican Hill, which was originally a racetrack. The obelisk in the center of St. Peter's Square was put there by none other than Caligula, a fun fact that you can drop at your next socially distanced cocktail party. The original St. Peter's Basilica, of course, rebuilt to its present form in the early 16th century, was constructed on the Vatican Hill because of Peter's martyrdom. It took a long time for the bishops of Rome to be seen as the predominant bishops. That was an idea called Petrine Supremacy, based upon a gospel passage where Jesus supposedly says something to Simon Peter about the keys of the kingdom. That was never universally accepted. The inhabitants of the eastern side of the Roman Empire always looked towards the patriarchs of Constantinople as their authority figures instead. Now, for the first few centuries of the Church's history after Simon Peter, the popes are very obscure individuals. Studying them is really the domain of specialists, but the common denominator to many of them, unfortunately, is that they suffered the same fate as Simon Peter. They suffered martyrdom. Being the most prominent Christian leaders in the capital of the empire itself, of course, made them prime targets. In the early 4th century AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine I became the first Christian Roman Emperor. At least that is the official story. The nature and the timeline of his conversion are unclear from the sources and so are hotly debated by specialists of the later Roman Empire today. Constantine gave an area called the Lateran Palace to the Pope at the time. Sylvester I, and that has been known ever since as the Church of St. John Lateran. And that was technically the headquarters of the Bishop of Rome, although over time, getting closer to the modern age, it was replaced by St. Peter's and Vatican City. Moving ahead to 366 AD, about 30 years after the death of Constantine I, there was a disputed papal election that resulted in mob violence. The two candidates were Damasus, the one who ultimately won out in the dispute, and Ursinus. Forces loyal to Damasus won the skirmish, but it left close to 150 Christians dead in the streets of Rome. During the last two decades of the 6th century AD, the papacy was held by Gregory the Great. 
And this guy was really one of the first popes to become internationally known. By international, of course, I mean Europe and the Mediterranean world. That was pretty much the limits of their Western world at the time. But Gregory was known as an author as well as a diplomat, having good relations with Byzantine emperors, kings of the tribe of the Lombards in northern Italy, and so forth. Yet it wasn't until late in the 8th century that the popes started to take on a new political role when they formed alliances with the Carolingian family who ruled over the Franks. The Carolingian king Pepin, sometimes known as Pepin the Short, took the first step when after defeating the Lombard king Aistulf, who had threatened Rome, he gifted an area of land in central Italy to the pope at the time and all the popes who came after him as the so-called Donation of Pepin. This was later known as the Papal States. Years later, Pepin's son Charles, later known as Charles the Great or Charlemagne, was crowned as Emperor of the Romans, or Augustus, by Pope Leo III. This was bestowed on Charlemagne and Old St. Peter's on Christmas Day of the year 800, quite possibly the coolest Christmas present ever. But the Carolingian family ultimately was unable to maintain that level of power after Charlemagne was gone. By the mid-800s, there was a serious fragmentation of power. Now, there were still kings who vied for the honor of being named an emperor of the Romans by a pope. This is the idea that's going to transform into the title of Holy Roman Emperor later in the Middle Ages. Though these monarchs were all relatively minor players compared to their predecessors like Charlemagne, they could still make their presence known in Italy and could do violence. There were other complicating factors as well, including some bases for Saracen raiders in southern Italy, Muslims originally from Sicily and North Africa, that could strike at central Italy and at Rome itself. As we come to the 870s, this begins a very strange time in the history of the papacy, one that is not as well documented as some others. This time period is bracketed by two popes that both took the name John upon their accessions. John VIII up through John Twelfth. This spans the years 872 to 965, so at that point we are approaching the end of the first millennium AD. But this was a time of great violence, great scandal, and even in a few cases of great decadence. And much of it stemmed from competition between aristocratic families who lived in and around Rome. The Senate of Rome, an institution that traced its origins back to the very beginnings of the city in the early Iron Age BC, was no longer in existence. However, the title of senator was still retained by members of aristocratic families. And senators often exercised great influence over the selection of popes and even became popes themselves sometimes. And this led to a number of men holding the office of the papacy whose behavior was, to put it mildly, not very pope-like, based upon modern expectations. Some of them could be characterized as gangsters and criminals. Now, the Pope who actually became the victim of the Cadaver Synod was a man named Formosus, and he did not change his name upon taking the title of Pope, incidentally. Not all of them did, although all of them have done so in modern times. About three decades before the Synod took place, Formosus became Bishop of the city of Porto in 864. This town was some distance from Rome at the mouth of the Tiber River and is today part of the modern town of Fiumicino. Formosus received this appointment as bishop from the Pope at that time, Nicholas I. A few years later, he did missionary work among the pagan tribe called the Bulgars in southeastern Europe. Even during this earlier time in his life, Formosus was already becoming embroiled in controversies. He was excommunicated by Pope John VIII in the year 876. 
The charges included the accusation that he aspired to become the archbishop over the Bulgars when he was already Bishop of Porto, and you were not allowed, according to canon law, to hold more than one see at a time. Also, John VIII said the Formosas had despoiled the cloisters in Rome. I'm not really sure what that means, but it involves some kinky stuff with nuns, I guess. But John VIII came to a really bad end in the year 882 when he became the first pope to be not martyred but assassinated by some of his own fellow clergy. He was poisoned, and when the poison didn't work quickly enough, the assassins finished the job with a hammer. So that's the end of the Pope John at the beginning of this era of iniquity that we are examining today. John's successor, Pope Marinus I, reversed the sentence of excommunication on Formosus. A nice enough gesture, however, this St. Pope Marinus I is said to have ordered the murder of a town official named Gregory right there in old St. Peter's, and then Marinus's successor, Pope Adrian III, had Gregory's widow whipped naked through the streets of Rome. This couple must have done something really severe. Anyway, back to Formosus, he was reinstated as Bishop of Porto, and the push to get him reinstated had come from the Carolingian king Charles the Fat. Charles was the son of Louis the German, one of the grandsons of Charlemagne, and at this moment was emperor of the Romans, although they had a rocky road leading up to that. He appears to have suffered from epilepsy, although it was generally interpreted as demonic possession. He may have actually feigned one of these episodes after the failure of a rebellion he led against his own family members years before. Formosus was a supporter of Charles. And a lot of the basis for the Cadaver Synod came from these connections between different individuals in the Vatican and various contenders for the job of Western Roman Emperor. But after about three years as Emperor, Charles the Fab was deposed by his own nephew, Arnulf of Carinthia, after a rebellion. Now, Adrian III's successor became Pope in 885, taking the name Stephen V. He was chosen by Vatican clergy and the powerful families of Rome without the approval of Emperor Charles the Fat. And there was another outside player involved, Guido or Guy of Spoleto, Spoleto being a region of central Italy. Guy was able to be crowned King of Italy, and then Pope Stephen V crowned him Emperor of the Romans. This was after Charles the Fat had been deposed by his nephew Arnulf, as I stated earlier. When Stephen V died in 891, Formosus then became the next pope. Formosus reluctantly reconfirmed Guy of Spoleto as emperor and also crowned his son Lambert as co-emperor. Both those men were close to Rome at the time, and Formosus did this for his own survival. But then Formosus and his associates made overtures to Arnulf of Carinthia. Carinthia is a region of southern Austria today. Arnulf brought an army across the Alps into Italy and battled it out with Guy and Lambert. When Guy found out about Formosus's intrigues, he had him thrown into prison in the Castel San Angelo, a fortress not far from the Vatican. But then Guy died rather suddenly. Possibly there was foul play involved, we don't know. Arnulf was then able to march into Rome and free Pope Formosus, and the grateful Formosus crowned him as emperor. This was in 896. But then Formosus died soon afterwards. Within a year or two of that event, Arnulf himself, stricken by what was probably a stroke, although perhaps he was poisoned, had withdrawn from Italy by 899. So in a way, the last man standing here was Guy's son Lambert, who was now ruler of Italy. The next pope, Boniface VI, only lasted 15 days, one of the shortest reigns of a pope in history. 
He's said to have died of gout, and there's really no reason to be too sympathetic because he had been demoted twice for immorality before becoming pope. He just knew the right people. Most importantly, the Emperor Lambert. So after Boniface, by late 896, we have a new pope, Stephen VI. Now, the very strange thing is that Stephen VI was a rival of Formosus, but Formosus had actually made him bishop years before, before the rivalry became acute, it seems. Some have speculated that it was meant as a punishment. That's a little hard to understand, but maybe he wanted a better assignment. He was made bishop of Enanyi, which is a hill town outside of Rome. Now, technically, canon or church law did not permit a bishop to transfer from one seat to another, and this was a problem in the background of how Stephen VI became pope because he was still Bishop of Anagni when the papacy was bestowed on him. But since it was Formosus that had made him Bishop of Anagni, if they were to invalidate all of Formosus's ordinations, that little problem, that skeleton in the closet, so to speak, would disappear. So in other words, the best way to avoid any challenges to his own legitimacy in the future would be for Stephen VI to have Pope Formosus completely discredited. But this is what leads us into the Cadaver Synod, and no one is completely sure about all of the pressures involved or whose idea this was. Stephen VI did reconfirm Lambert as Emperor of the Romans, so Lambert might have had a hand in it. Personal enmity was also involved. It said that Stephen VI was filled with hatred for Formosus. What it's going to lead up to is something that had never happened before in church history and has not happened since— and that is the trial and condemnation of the corpse of a pope. In January of 897, Pope Stephen VI commanded clergy to appear in the church of St. John Lateran. This later became known as the Synod Horrenda, a trial in which the defendant was the recently exhumed corpse of Pope Formosus. An unfortunate deacon was strong-armed into becoming advocate or spokesman for the dead pope during the trial. Because the Synod was itself discredited later, we have no official transcript of the proceedings. What we have are the stories of eyewitnesses put into writing years later, all of whom claim to have been just completely mortified, no pun intended, by what had happened and the fact that they had been forced to sit there in a room with a dead, rotting, stinking Pope as it was put on trial for several hours. The official charges were for perjury and also various violations of canon law. The trial, such as it was, appears to have consisted of Pope Stephen continuously screaming at and railing at the cadaver of Formosus, and the defense deacon occasionally meekly piping up with an answer to one of the accusations. Everything ended in the surprise verdict of guilty. I'm sure all were waiting with breathless anticipation for that one, none more so than Formosus himself. The three fingers of his right hand, used by popes for benediction, were cut off, and the body was then cast into the Tiber River. It was retrieved and buried again by a monk who claimed that he had had nightmares of Formosus directing him to where his body lay. Not long after this, the church of St. John Lateran burned to the ground. It was rebuilt, of course. It's still there today. The fire led many people in Rome, already sickened by the tale of the Cadaver Synod, to feel that divine vengeance was at work. And within a few weeks, an uprising in the city led to Pope Stephen VI being imprisoned and then strangled in his cell. 
Before I continue the story, I want to digress for a moment and consider where this concept for the Cadaver Synod could have originated from, other than the twisted imaginations of certain people. Well, remember Pope Gregory the Great of the late 6th century, who I mentioned earlier in the episode. One of his many written works which survives is called The Dialogues. And the fourth book of the Dialogues collects a lot of really strange, miraculous tales. Kind of thing perfect for this show, put it that way. But there's one passage of Book 4 in particular, where Gregory asserts that he had collected evidence that corpses of people who had died with sin on their souls, that had not been absolved or forgiven, would be rejected by holy ground. Gregory does list a few examples of this. A man named Valentinus who, the night after he had been entombed in a cathedral, was seen being dragged from said cathedral by two devils. The devils were pulling him with ropes that they had attached to each of his legs, and he was screaming in agony and terror the entire time. They opened the tomb the next morning, and sure enough, his body was missing. So the onlookers had beheld a reanimated corpse or zombie of Valentinus. Gregory also relates a tale of an anonymous dyer of fabrics, The night after his burial, people in the vicinity could hear his voice crying out from the grave, I burn, I burn. And when they tried to exhume him the next morning, his body was also missing. Some scholars today feel that the Cadaver Synod was some kind of real-world application for political purposes of these superstitions, based on the idea that if they could establish the premise that Pope Formosus had been wicked, then his body didn't deserve burial on holy ground. aftermath of the death of Stephen VI, there was a definite backlash. His papal successor, Theodore II, officially had the synod overturned, and they tracked down the body of Formosus and had it reburied reverently in St. Peter's. But Theodore II did not survive long, and his successor was Pope Sergius III. And unlike Theodore, Sergius was of the faction that had opposed Formosus. And he actually wanted to see the Synod upheld. However, Lambert favored a different candidate for the papacy. So before the year was out, Sergius III had been deposed and replaced by a man who took the name of Pope John IX. John IX issued several decrees, including a re-condemnation of the cadaver synod, an eternal condemnation, he called it, just to make sure this time, I guess. And he also passed a decree stating that never again would the trial of a corpse take place in the Vatican. Just sounds like good hygiene to me. But not long after that, Emperor Lambert was killed in a hunting accident. Two years later, Pope John IX was dead. His successor was Benedict IV, who ruled for three years. And then he was followed by Leo V. Leo V had been on the papal throne for only a few weeks when he was deposed through the actions of a rival clergyman in Rome named Christopher, who seized the papacy for himself. Yes, Pope Chris I. Leo V, in the meantime, was confined to a prison cell. But then Sergius III came riding back into town with the support of a nobleman known as Margrave Alberic. Sergius III is able to become pope a second time now, and he's not the only pope in history to hold the papacy more than once. Sergius had both Christopher and Leo V strangled in prison. Yes, he ordered the assassination of two popes at once. A terrible deed by any measure. 
but he took it even a little further than that. He officially rehabilitated the cadaver synod. Keep in mind, it had been eternally condemned, so he out-eternalized it, I guess. In addition to Margrave Alberic, Sergius III had some other important allies, most notably his own cousin, Count Theophylact, sounds like a great vampire's name, who was the ruler of Tusculum, southeast of Rome, and Theophylact's wife, Theodora. Theophylact and Theodora had a daughter named Marozia, who was eventually married off to Margrave Alberic. But some sources allege before that marriage took place, when Marozia was only 15 years old, she was impregnated by Pope Sergius III and gave birth to a son. But not just any son, a son who years later became none other than Pope John XI. Now, to be clear, not all historians today accept that as fact. It is possible that hostile sources stated this in order to further discredit Pope Sergius III and his allies and associates. Now, Marozia did have a son with Alberic after their marriage, a boy also named Alberic. And so those historians who doubt that scandalous tale about Pope Sergius III figure that the boy who became Pope John XI was actually also fathered by Alberic I. Because of his link to Pope Sergius III, Count Theophylact was awarded a number of important positions and responsibilities in Rome, including supervision of urban finances and command of the city guardsmen. Sergius III died in 911, and he was buried with full honors in St. Peter's, keep that in mind. She and her second husband, Guido of Tuscany, removed Sergius's successor, Pope John X, in 928, placed him in the Castel San Angelo. When her husband died, Marozia sent a servant girl into the prison to suffocate Pope John X with a pillow. At this stage, she had become in many ways the leader of Rome. Many sources refer to her as Domina Senatrix, or Lady Senator. If you take a few letters out of the inside and push the two words together, you get Dominatrix. Another term used for this period by chroniclers obviously hostile to Marozia was the pornocracy. And one of her sons became Pope John XI in 931. Remember, it's alleged that Pope Sergius III had been the father. Now, Marozia's first husband, Alberic I, had died. She decided to get married again to a man named Hugh of Al in southern France, the idea being he would become Emperor of the Romans, being crowned by John XI. However, the other son of Marozia, also named Alberic, so we'll call him Alberic II, didn't like this arrangement. The marriage did occur, but then Alberic II led a revolt and imprisoned his mother and her new husband in the Castel San Angelo. Now, Hugh managed to escape, but Marozia languished there until her death. And Alberic II became the leader of Rome for the next several decades. His son, who he had named Octavian, possibly suffering from an episode of Delusions of Grandeur, that's because Octavian was the original name of the man who became the first ever Roman emperor, Augustus. Octavian became Pope John the Twelfth in 955. John the Twelfth had an extremely poor reputation in later chronicles. It's said that he enjoyed the earthly power of ruling Rome even more than he enjoyed the religious authority of the papacy. He said to have turned the Church of St. John Lateran into a brothel. He invoked ancient Roman pagan gods like Jupiter and Venus, that he would toast to the devil's health, that he took bribes to ordain men as bishops, including on one occasion ordaining a man inside a donkey stable, and on another occasion ordaining a 10-year-old boy as a bishop. 
He got into a conflict with the king of Germany, Otto I, who he did crown as an emperor of the Romans, but then Otto had him deposed for being such a degenerate as well as intriguing with Otto's enemies, although he was able to return to Rome after Otto and his troops left. He then subsequently had all of the clergy who had voted to depose him mutilated. John XII is said to have died during a sexual encounter right outside of the city, either from some kind of a fit or seizure, or because he was murdered by a jealous husband. This was in 965, and this brings to a close a particularly sordid chapter in the history of the papacy. Among his many mistresses was a woman named Joan, and it has been proposed that the very bizarre legend of Pope Joan, a woman dressing as a man and somehow ascending to the papal throne, might derive from that. It's a very intriguing legend that states that her subterfuge worked until she became pregnant did her best to hide her pregnancy under long papal vestments, but she began to give birth in the streets of Rome during a procession, and the horrified crowd beat her to death. It's a very intriguing tale, but modern historians cannot find any corroborating evidence for it. The story of Pope Joan was later linked to rather strange rituals involving the enthronement of new popes on something called the Sedia Stercoraria, or the dung chair, a seat with a hole in the bottom. Scholars have speculated that this object was some kind of Roman birthing stool or possibly even toilet facility. But the legend developed that when the new pope was crowned, a clergyman would reach under the chair and squeeze to ensure that there were testicles present, which he would then announce saying, yes, there are testes and they are dangling nicely. So back then, if you asked the pope, how's it hanging? He could say, see for yourself. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Have a happy and safe Halloween, and I'm looking forward to having you all back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.